The scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 35. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing our series, uh, Resolving Everyday Conflicts. We're on the fourth G. So the first G was go higher, bring God into the conflict, seek to glorify God as you pursue conflict resolution. The second G was get real, which had to do with getting the log out of your own eye, owning your part of the problem. You remember that uh, what the author of the book said was even if you're only 2% responsible for the conflict, you're still 100% responsible for that 2%. You don't own it. Uh, third was gently engage, seek to restore the other person that is caught in sin. And then this morning, we're looking at the fourth G, which is get together on lasting solutions, which begins with a willingness on your part to forgive the offender. Now, the book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, on which this series has been based and which the growth groups have been working through over the last several weeks, it's, it's filled with great steps, you know, really important and helpful techniques that spring from Scripture for doing conflict resolution. But, but as we've been emphasizing in every one of our sermons, and, and really as the book also emphasizes, Technique alone will not be enough. Following the biblical steps, as good and helpful and I would say necessary as they are, will not be enough. They won't change you. It won't bring lasting change in your heart to just mechanically follow the steps. It won't bring change in the heart of the person with whom you're in conflict. It ultimately won't lead to the kind of testimony to God's reconciling work in the hearts of people and between people that he would seek to have our conflict resolution bear testimony to. The first week of our series, we looked at James chapter 4 and saw that all the conflict that takes place within us is first rooted in and springs from conflict that is taking place within us. James tells us that all our quarreling and fighting among us is because of inordinate desires 
that wage war within us. In other words, conflict externally brings, springs from conflict internally. Conflict horizontally is first conflict vertically between you and God. The problem is with the heart, and only God can fix that. Now, as we approach the conclusion of this series next week, we find that the place from which the problem springs, the heart, is also and must also be the place from which the solution springs. The all-important step of granting forgiveness, perhaps the hardest, probably is the hardest step, But that all-important step of granting forgiveness to the one who has offended you, it must come from the heart. Jesus makes that plain in this passage. In other words, it must be real. It can't be half-hearted forgiveness. We can't say, I forgive you because that's what Christians do. It can't be, I forgive you this time. It can't be, I forgive you, but it better never happen again. This is, we're all, some of us are there right now. We've all been there. You know what it's like when you've been hurt by someone. The thought of forgiving them from the heart feels like a bridge too far. When you are hurt, you have a choice. You can either build a wall around your heart. And some of us have that. We have multiple walls. We have fortresses. We have, you know, barbed wire across the top around our hearts. We've been hurt, and no one's going to get that close again. Or you can declare war on the other person. You can do everything you can to take vengeance into your own hands, even if it's just vengeance that's being cycled in your heart and mind. Or you can forgive them. Jesus makes it unmistakably clear what his followers are called to do. We are called to forgive from the heart. But he also tells us where the resources come from in order to do the very thing that he commands us to do. So three things we'll see from the text. First, that true forgiveness pays the price. True forgiveness pays the price. It costs something to forgive. True forgiveness pays the price. False Forgiveness demands payment. False forgiveness makes people pay. And then third, we find the grace to forgive from the heart. So true forgiveness pays the price. False forgiveness makes people pay. And then third in this passage, we find the grace to forgive from the heart. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage We thank you for preserving it for us down to this day. It's a hard text. Lord, we pray that you would help us to take it to heart, that we might forgive others from the heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, true forgiveness pays the price. So we're going to read through the first part of the parable, scene one, I'll say, from verses 23 to 27. And just remember, when Jesus is telling a parable, we're often meant to hear it and find ourselves at some point in it. We find God in the parable, where's God represented, and we find where we are. Jesus is teaching us something about 
God and about ourselves as we find ourselves in the parable. Now, let me first say there's a a figure in this parable, some of whom you identify with, and that is the servant number two in scene number two, the one who is being choked, the one who is not being shown mercy, the one who is pleading for it, and yet someone else in their life is demanding a payment that they are not able to pay. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, let me first say, I am sorry. That is a hard place to be. And I hope that even as you hear the parable and and consider the first servant, which is whom we're primarily meant to identify with, you will in that find the resources from God to forgive that person who is even now demanding payment from you. That being said, we are by and large meant to identify with this first servant that we see in the first part of this parable. So let's read it together. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, one talent equaled 20 years worth of wages for a typical laborer in that day. 20 years for one talent. He owed 10,000 talents. Now, I'm a pastor and not a mathematician. However, if my math is right, it's going to take him 200,000 years to pay off this debt. So then you hear this ridiculous proposition, right? The servant fell on his knees, verse 26, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, what's the point? Jesus is talking about sin here. That's the point of the parable. Back in in verse 21, which we didn't read, you have the context. Peter is saying to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. So that's the context. And Jesus, as he's teaching Peter, as Peter asks him, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Jesus says, well, let's think about how much You are in sin debt to God. Let me tell you a story, Peter. So he tells Peter, and because God has preserved this force down to this very day, he tells us our sin is a debt beyond our ability to repay. Your sin is a debt beyond your ability to repay. Now, before we go any further, let me just ask you, Which proposition do you find yourself making to God when you consider your sin in light of who he is, in light of his holiness? Is your proposition to God, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything? Or is your proposition to God, have mercy on me because I have nothing? It must be the latter. You know it's the former. You know you're living out of that idea that I can somehow earn God's forgiveness when, for instance, you've had a great quiet time in the morning, so surely the rest of your day will go well. Or you really feel bad about the way in which you treated this person or that person, so surely God will bless you. Or you're convinced, on the other hand, I didn't do my quiet time today, so surely God won't bless me. In other words, your relationship with God is transactional is based on what you can do in order to be right with him 
not on what he has done in order to rescue you from your sin and pay this debt that you cannot pay. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything is a ridiculous proposition. And yet, the king in the parable pays the price to forgive. God is the king who paid the price to forgive the servant's debt. The servant couldn't pay the price. The king paid the price, right? You're saying, well, wait a minute. What do you do, pay himself? I mean, the servant owed him all that money. This is the point. The king had to absorb that debt. Someone had to pay the price. If the servant couldn't pay the king back, then it was the king's loss that had to be absorbed. And that's the point in this part of the parable. Forgiveness is always costly. Forgiveness is always costly. That gets to the heart of Peter's question in verse 21. Back in verse 15, Jesus had been teaching them, and Jesus said this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So Jesus is saying in verse 15, that's how much reconciliation matters to God. It matters so much to God that I want you to go look for people to forgive. Like, go hunt them down. If they have sinned against you, go find them. Tell them your, their fault just between the two of you. Ultimately, with the goal being that you gain that person. You gain your brother. Forgiveness, reconciliation takes place. Peter's listening. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then in verse 21, Peter says, wait a minute. How many times do I have to do that? How often? When my brother sins against me. Seven times, Jesus? Now, you've, you've heard the story probably before. You know the the way in which the rabbis had taught, you know, you only have to forgive three times. You must forgive the second time. You must forgive the, the first time, the second time. Then after the third time, you don't need to forgive anymore. That's what the rabbis taught. So Peter's thinking, okay, this is Jesus. Uh, double plus one. How about seven times, Jesus? Now, the, the next, you know, Jesus' response could be translated um, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times, seven times. Either way, the point there, both of those are idiomatic for an infinite number. Jesus is saying you don't stop. You just keep on forgiving when people come to you seeking it. Peter's point in saying surely seven times was, you know, Jesus, at some point, this is going to cost too much. It's going to hurt too much. For me to forgive. I won't have the resources within me to do this anymore. So surely seven will be sufficient. And Jesus says, no. You just keep going. True forgiveness, Jesus says, pays the price. Secondly, false forgiveness makes people pay. False forgiveness makes people pay. Let's look at scene two in this parable. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii was around 20 weeks worth of wages. Not an inconsequential amount. 20 weeks worth of wages for someone who was, you know, a common laborer in that day. You still had to live. You still had to feed your family. It was going to hurt you to pay that, or if you were the one who was being owed that money, it was going to hurt you to forgive it. And this servant, servant number one, would not forgive that debt. 
He took him, he choked him, the servant number two pled for mercy, and servant number one had him thrown in jail. Now, I titled the second point, False Forgiveness Demands Payment. There's no effort at forgiveness here from servant number one. We're not quite that, you know, in your face. We're much more subtle. We do engage in false forgiveness. I forgive you, but I'm going to hold this against you. This will come up again. We don't verbalize that, but we're tucking that away. I forgive you, but it better not happen again. I forgive you, but I will not trust you. Again, these are probably not things that we verbalize, but these are the things that are going on in our hearts. The, the words are there, I forgive you, but the intention or the attitude of forgiveness is not present. It's false forgiveness. We're demanding payment, either in that moment or you know, we've got, the, we've, got the, you know, we've got the bill. We're going to cash it in at some point. We're going to make the other person pay. Jesus' point here is that people do sin against us. And they sin against us in significant ways. That sin may feel impossible to forgive. And yet, in light of the sin that we've been forgiven, for a follower of Jesus Christ, it is impossible not to extend forgiveness to that person. It is a process to get there. And that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for the other person's sin. The abuser may need to go to jail. The husband who cheated on his spouse may be divorced, or it may be some time before his wife is able to trust him again. The person who murdered a family member may end up in jail for the rest of his Life, And yet we all must choose when we are hurt, when we are sinned against, even in the most grievous ways. We all must choose, will I build a wall around my heart? Will I seek to take vengeance into my own hands? Or will I forgive? There's so many examples throughout history, distant past and recent past, that are, are really, you know, stellar when it comes to helping us understand what it looks like to forgive, even though it costs a great deal. June 17th, 2015, a small black church in Charleston, South Carolina, midweek prayer meeting has taken place. Dylan Roof walks into the meeting. He introduces himself, and then he took out an automatic weapon and opened fire. Nine of the victims died. Some two months later, when the victim impact statements were being read to Dylan Roof, who never once looked at the people in the eye, and at the end, after all the statements were read, said, I still felt like I had to do it. Bethany Middleton Brown, whose sister was murdered, in the church, said to Dylan, I wanted to hate you, but my faith tells me no. I wanted to remain angry and bitter, but my view of life won't let me. And then there's Rachel Denhollander. Rachel Denhollander was a Michigan State University gymnast. She, along with hundreds of other gymnasts, were sexually abused by Larry Nasser who was a trainer and a physician 
Rachel Denhaller spoke to him in court in January of 2018 at his sentencing, and she said this, If you have read the Bible, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin that he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. And then she told him that she forgives him. But then she also said, more than anything else, what you need is the forgiveness of God. Now, do you see the shift that happened there? From what could have been and what from all of us may have been tempted to engage in, which is a a, a turning over of vengeance in the heart, of wanting to see the other person pay, to instead a willingness to say in the heart, I hope you recognize what Jesus has paid for all who put their trust in him. That is a supernatural work of grace in the heart. Only God can do that. Where does that grace come from? Third, it comes from the Lord himself. I want you to look back with me at verse 32. It struck me, I've probably read this I've read this parable so many times. But you know how it is. Sometimes you're reading something, you've read a lot, and then something this jumps out at you. And for me, it was found in verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. What kind of pleading did the servant do? It wasn't the kind of pleading that you would think God would respond to. It wasn't have mercy on me because I have nothing to offer you. It was have patience with me and I will pay you everything. How many times do we come before God thinking we know the depth of our sin and we know nothing of the depth of our sin? Oh, we do, though, in a way. When you look at the cross, when you look at the Son of God hanging there, when you see him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you realize that the father turned his face away from his own son in order that your sin and my sin might be forgiven, we get something, something at a human level of what it means to have our great sin forgiven. But man, we can only go so far with that. Because we don't have any clue what it means for the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be in perfect, loving communion with one another for all eternity and then to have that violated, separated, torn that we might know healing, wholeness, and grace. That's the very heart of God. To show grace, to show mercy, even we don't come close to acknowledging how much we need it. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, God being rich in mercy, let me find it here. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But the first part of that verse, but God being rich in mercy. 
Dane Ortland in his book Gentle and Lowly, which I, I can't commend, commend to you highly enough. Dane Ortland points out that there's nowhere else in the Bible that God is referred to as rich in anything. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, God is rich in mercy. And it isn't that God is becoming rich in mercy, but that God being rich in mercy. His very heart, his very inclination, the thing that he delights to do is to show mercy. He doesn't wait for us to get it. He just waits for us to look to him and recognize we are in desperate need. We, we make foolish offers. I think, I think of the, the parable of the prodigal son, the other, another parable that Jesus tells. The son comes to his senses. He's making his way back to the father. He's thinking in his mind, I'll, I'll say to my father, make me like one of your hired servants. I'll, I'll pay back this debt. And the father runs and meets him and throws the robe on him and says, kills the fattened calf, we're going to celebrate. This is who God is. God is a God who delights to show mercy. Do you believe that that is true concerning you? Do you think that that's only true for other people, but it couldn't possibly be true for you? If that is where you are this morning, please recognize that the thing you need more than anything else is not the ability to forgive other people or to find you know, peace in relationships that are characterized by strife now. It is to lay, as the, as the hymn writer says, to lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. To rest in him and him alone gloriously complete. It is to find in Christ the forgiveness that is greater than you realize you need. But to find it there in Jesus. And having found that, you will begin to experience in your heart the ability to forgive. It is not too much to say that as you realize that God has forgiven you from his heart, you will be able to forgive others from yours. One final example of a, of a hero of forgiveness, <laughs> Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom was imprisoned at a concentration camp in World War II. Her father and her sister died. She survived. After the war, she um, traveled around the world sharing her testimony of God's grace and love in her life. One day, after giving a talk at a church, a man came up to her, and it was one of her former SS guards who had become a Christian. And this is how Corey Ten Boom tells the story. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy, that's her sister, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he washed my sins away. 
Corey Ten Boom says, his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who preached so often to the people of Blumendahl the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered, and here's the key, that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies... He gives, along with the command, the love itself. We have infinite riches of mercy in Christ upon which we can um, pull, draw, in order to extend mercy to others. God's heart toward you is one of mercy by his grace Lean upon him, draw upon him, that your forgiveness might increasingly be from the heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in Christ we see the very evidence that you have forgiven us from your heart. The the Savior whose birth we celebrate this time of year is the Savior who came as an expression of your very merciful being. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our place on the cross, for bearing the cost, for paying the price, the price that we could not pay, that our sins might be forgiven. Lord, help us to take these things to heart. Do a work in us that we might be people who are quick to forgive and to forgive from the heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.